Purple, get ready to roll indeed. Welcome to the first edition of the College and Kimball podcast. I am your host, Jeff Burkhart, distinguished graduate of K-State's AQ Miller School of Journalism. Don't check the transcripts. Joining me tonight, and for what we hope to be many, many more episodes, are three big-time cat fans, one of which you undoubtedly know from Twitter. He's the guy posting all of those classic plays from the 90s and 2000s at the K-State Fan 2, better known as Clint Wilson. Our other two show mainstays will be Alex Speth and Justin Nutter. Please follow us on Twitter at college underscore Kimball. If you do go out and give us a follow, you will find our individual Twitter handles linked in the account description. We know that the K-State football fan community is a great group to engage with, not just on game days, but really at any point during the year. That being said, please, guys, if you have questions for us, thoughts, bad takes, hot takes, old takes, we're here for all of it. So go ahead and hit us up on Twitter if you want to discuss anything K-State football. That being said... We're going to go ahead and address the rather obvious question, why begin a college football podcast as we get ready to roll into the dullest part of any offseason, what is now going to be the summer of 2021? Well, the reason we wanted to start it now is to begin with a retrospective, a look back at the Snyder 2.0 era. It's hard to believe it, but we're almost three years removed now from Bill's final season at the helm of the K-State Wildcats and just felt it would be an appropriate time to go back and examine all of those years, look at the good and the bad, and we're going to leave no stone unturned here. We're going to go look at depth charts, recruiting hits and misses, obviously break down all the games, how they influence the Big 12 title race, and in some cases how it influenced the national title race, and also look at some what-if scenarios as it relates to not only recruiting, but game outcomes, injuries, any and all things. So like I said, no stone going to be left unturned here as we get ready to begin the Snyder 2.0 retrospective. And with that said, I think it's time to dive into year one of the Snyder 2.0 era, the 2009 football season. Let's go ahead, briefly set the table for 2009 and talk about how 08 wrapped up for Kansas State. The Cats go 5-7 and seven that year, Ron Prince's final season as head coach of Kansas State. He was a lame duck for the final three games of that year after being unceremoniously fired following a 52-21 to 21 defeat at the hands of the Mark Mangino-led Kansas Jayhawks. Now that pivots into a rather entertaining point in time for any K-State fan and uh I think everybody knows where we're likely going with this, the coaching search that ensued immediately following Ron Prince's dismissal. There were obviously, as many people know, certain outlets reporting that a TCU head coach by the name of Gary Patterson had not only been offered, but had accepted the position as head coach of Kansas State. And Justin, uh, We'll start off with you here as you were a reporter for the K-State Collegian throughout your time as a student at Kansas State. You had a little bit of insight in terms of what went down with this story. Yeah, so um, obviously I was still a student at the time. was actually in my digital photography class in Kedzie Hall, and uh, uh, someone caught wind of it uh, there in class and said, "We just it looks like we just got a new football coach. And I, would, I had just started writing for the collegian, not a couple months before that really hadn't even gotten my feet wet yet. And, uh, 
ran out of class figuring I needed to do something to, you know, get, get something online with the collegian and, um, not knowing any better. Like I said, just young reporter hadn't really done anything yet. I just kind I just looked up the athletic director's office and just called Bob Krause and, uh, his secretary answered, said, uh, he's not in right now. I'll, uh, I can leave a message. And that probably should have been the end of it, but not five minutes later, my phone rings and it's Bob Krause. And, uh, tells me directly, you know, names the outlet specifically and says, no, Gary Patterson is not Kansas State's next football coach. That's being misreported. I say, thanks for your time. Call my sports editor at the time. And uh, his uh, entire response is, all right, cool. I'll put man back on it. And uh, <laughs> I this is, you know, before Twitter, this is, I didn't have any other way to get that information out there. So I just kind of Kind of let it go. Still something, honestly, I kind of kick myself about. But, uh, Cole, if you're listening, you're welcome, buddy. (laughs) Uh, We love you, Cole, man, back. Um, Yeah, that was very crazy. I just remember the way that it all went down. I was actually getting ready to go to Columbia for the Mizzou game. And I remember hearing it on the radio as I was going out of town and then shutting off the radio and then we turned it back on within a couple of hours later. And then it just, again, everybody walking everything back. It was just kind of crazy the way that it all shook out, but neither here nor there. So uh, obviously at this point in time, uh, within a matter of days after that, we learned that Bill Snyder is going to return for a second stint as Kansas State's football coach. Before we kind of pivot and start talking about the season, I, I did kind of want to get your thoughts, Clint and Alex, your reaction when you learned the news, were you encouraged, were you excited, or uh, were you more, cons- I, I know I, I was more concerned that it would go south and it would tarnish the legacy. I don't know if you guys had some of those same sentiments or what were you feeling when you learned that Snyder was going to take over? I was a little bummed because I was very excited about Gary Patterson. <laughs> I, at the time, I had no idea that Gary Patterson played at K-State, went to K-State. And so once I found that out, I was I thought it was a home run. I was so freaking happy. And then obviously, we our hopes were dashed. Uh, Snyder left kind of unceremoniously uh, the first time around. So I didn't have high hopes for him the second time. You know, the whole calm the waters thing. I thought he'd be here, you know, two or three, four years maybe. So, you know, another just kind of bridge period. Uh, I didn't have a lot of emotion about it. I was okay with it. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll echo some of those thoughts. I was very excited for Patterson. I think uh, I maybe knew a little bit ahead of that, just you know, maybe the year or two leading up that he'd be a candidate and learn that he used to play for K-State and was from, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the town. Some tiny town. Roselle, Kansas. Roselle, yes. I knew, I, I used to work with a girl from there, so, and her dad's like, real good friends with Gary Patterson, but I didn't get any good inside info, but uh, yeah, I felt like it was kind of a band aid, you know, like, okay, well, he'll come back for three or four years maybe and kind of get things and send it off to the next guy or whatever. So I don't know. It's hard thinking about it. Cause I think, you know, your, your, your thoughts on it get diluted over the years based on what happened. Cause obviously we had a pretty good stretch there things didn't end so well but it's like you know going back 
I guess, pretty happy he came back. I wish he would have retired a little quicker the second time around, but yep. I think back at that time, I just felt like it was uh, just kind of just delaying the, the, the progress of the program, you know, so... No, I, I think a lot of people, particularly once we start and once we get to those seasons, when we start talking about 2017, 2018, I think a lot of people probably felt that way at the, that point in right. time and some quite a bit sooner too, you know, uh, it's one of those things. And I think a lot of the, the big concerns a lot of people had in him coming back was the the changing landscape of the Big 12 and also how, uh, as we all know, football is based about Jimmy's and Joe's man. And, and it will always be that way. And to that end, uh, his first recruiting class ranks 92nd by rivals 70th by 24 seven. So this is going to be a recurring theme uh, as we move forward in the, in the Snyder two Oh era. But um, even with that taken into consideration, we still have one fairly large piece uh, to the puzzle that was still up in the air ostensibly but not but at the end of the day i think everybody knew that josh freeman the big what if uh whether or not he would stay whether he would go we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail as we get uh later on in this uh in this uh installment here but let's pivot forward and dive into the roster that was 2009 and Going back and looking at names, I, I've really enjoyed doing this, and I, I think everybody else would would feel very much the same way. Uh, Clint, just looking at some of the guys on offense, again, this this was a patchwork group uh, to the nth degree and like and kind of headlined by Grant Gregory, a guy we didn't even know if he was even going to make it to campus. That, that was a very late addition, but uh, it turned out to be a pretty solid option at quarterback, all things considered, and even though he didn't have a whole lot around him. The first thing I never knew about Grant Gregory was that picture of blood streaming down his face in the South Florida <laughs> uniform. And I thought, oh, this guy's a badass. He's going to be great for us. Yeah, he's okay. I like the guy, though. Uh, Daniel Thomas sat out that year before getting academically ready. Uh, when he first came in, we were thinking quarterback, I think. So his transition to running back was a little up in the air. I don't really remember the talk about him before the season. Obviously, once he got going, he turned out to be an all-time great. Uh, Braden Wilson, true freshman, turned out to be great. Brandon Banks, uh, one of the most unrated K-State players that I can think of. Obviously, his stats took a little bit of a nosedive playing for Bill Snyder in that run-first offense. Same with Jerron Mastrud. Uh, we had, a, I think, a pretty decent offensive line. Nick Stringer returned. We have four new guys as starters, Zach Kendall, Wade Weibert, Kenneth Mayfield, and Clyde Offner. A fairly solid group. Uh, Jeffrey Fitzgerald, transferred from Virginia. If there's one guy who I was surprised didn't even get a chance in the NFL, it's him. That guy was pretty athletic. He had great size. And the rest of the defensive line is nothing to write home about. Linebackers, <laughs> maybe the worst linebacking unit at K-State of all time. <laughs> and there, there, there were some rough units, too, towards the end of Snyder 2-0. And again, no offense to these guys, but when we start talking about, like, Trent Tanking, Jade Kirby, and things oh, like that. Uh, but I've this, this one, Kirby. this was pretty, pretty stiff group of linebackers. I will say John Hulick, though, probably doesn't get enough run for a guy mm -hmm. that uh, – had 
pretty good range for someone of his stature. Pretty impressive, at least in my eyes. But uh, aside from that, again, a very lean group defensively. Uh, Emmanuel Lemur, as we know, was very adamant about playing a certain position early in his career before moving him to linebacker. So he's playing safety for us uh, on this particular roster. And uh, one of the guy, uh, one, a big name uh, and rest in peace to him. David Garrett was on this roster. Didn't see as many snaps probably as he should have seen uh, again, something that will become a recurring theme amongst the Snyder two <laughs> rosters, mm-hmm. but um it, w- it was a pretty solid group, and one other thing I'll mention defensively in researching this, 2008 was a train wreck, y'all. Like, it, there, there is no mistake. They gave up 35 points per game. They were 112th in scoring defense. This group actually turned out to be pretty damn respectable on that, and uh, defensive coordinator who came in was Vic Caning, and to they ended up improving from – 112th up to 47th in scoring D, took it down to 23 points per game. I'll just ask you, Nutter, did we think any kind of improvement like that would be possible coming off of the season that was with Ron Prince, where it seemed like literally every Saturday they were giving up 50 a game? Um, the fact that the the new... You know, the new coach at the helm had done it before and taken over arguably a worse situation the first time. Yeah, I mean, you had to think there was at least some possibility there. Obviously, you knew it was going to be an uphill battle and we weren't going to win, you know, seven, eight, nine games out of the gate. But that's I think there was definitely um, a- enough. There was definitely enough level of excitement there to think that it was a possibility that we would see improvement. pretty quickly. <clears throat> Definitely. Yeah. Great to see. Oh, oh, I was just going to say, yeah, looking at some of those, um, some of those highlights and scores from that season that did jump out at me that there were, a, you know, several games where the defense looked like they played pretty good. They didn't allow too many points, obviously uh, several games where they, you know, didn't do so great. You know, I feel like that's coaching. They probably had a lot of gaps in the defense, but if the other team maybe, wasn't uh, attacking our weaknesses or we could mask them and, you know, our, our strengths kind of matched up better with the, the other team's um, weakness on that, you know, like obviously Texas, uh, Texas tech just like scorched us, but then, you know, A&M, our defense pretty much shut them down the whole game. So, you know, that's just good coaching, you know, that, that, that wasn't there in 2008. We, we had definite limit, limitations on defense, but, you know, most of the games we were able to either limit those or mask them completely, uh, depending on what we're going up against. So, And the other thing, and, and to, not to totally discredit 2008, it does make a pretty big difference when you're talking about that Ron Prince team, that Tim Tebisar coach defense going up against Sam Bradford and and a national championship uh, contender, Oklahoma, the Missouri team that was led by Chase Daniel. They ended up winning 10 games. The Texas Tech squad that had Graham Harrell, that this was when we had that three way tie in the South when every when Oklahoma, Texas and Tech all finished seven and one that again, 
I'm I'm the last person in the world to defend Ron Prince and, and those units, but man, that that, that was, was a tough rough year. And there, yep. were, there were not many there were there were not many teams in in Kansas State's position from a talent perspective that would have been able to hang with a lot of those offenses. That was a 2008 might have been one of the best years in in Big 12 history as far as that's concerned. But let's pivot forward and let's start talking about 2009 and the season that was. So uh, high level here in the Big 12. Texas goes a perfect 12 and 0 in the regular season. They win the South and they end up squaring off against Nebraska. Now we're obviously going to talk about Nebraska and how they came to win the North here a little bit later on. Texas ultimately does go on to win the big 12 uh, courtesy of maybe a generous clock operator. Who's who's to say here, but they end up taking down Nebraska in the big 12 title 13 to 12 uh, probably one of the worst Big 12 title games I can ever recall watching, but that Nebraska offense was painful to watch. Um, so moving into the season, so K-State, this is back, and this is so weird to say now, this is old Big 12 days, so you have eight conference games, you get four non-cons. Cats have lined up UMass and uh, Clint, uh, a notable uh, opposite uh, player on this roster that nobody will probably ever remember but he ended up torching K-State in this game, and that UMass game was probably a little bit closer than folks would have imagined, but I'll, I'll pivot to you here as, <laughs> as we get ready to dive into the season. I do not remember anything about the UMass game other than a few years after that game, seeing that Victor Cruz was having a pretty successful NFL career, popping up, oh, he went to UMass? Didn't we just play UMass? Sure enough, he was on that team, and... Had a pretty good game against us. Yeah, and then you check that box score, and whew, it was it was dicey. K-State ends up winning that first game in the non-con, 21-17 over UMass. And then we get to uh, one of the more frustrating and arguably, the I know the North Dakota State game in 2013 was certainly a frustrating outcome, but this game really made you, I think, made a lot of folks question whether or not we might have made a good decision in bringing Snyder back because the the loss at Louisiana, again, going on the road to face a G5 school, never a good idea, but that this is when the return game just happened to come down the pike, so Snyder has to go to Lafayette. K-State ends up losing that game at the gun 15-17, to 17, and I don't know who wants to take the lead here and talk about the most frustrating part of this game because there's, yeah, I really there's a lot. Just, I'll, I'll fall on that sword. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, obviously the uh, the kicking game was definitely the the storyline that night. Um, this was in the old days of ESPN 360, and uh, the only way to get that in Manhattan was on, if I remember right, on K-State campus. The, their internet was the only way you could stream that game. I will tell um, you confidently, I was actually at Kites in a very anxious crowd waiting as their the, the bartenders are fumbling. They're trying to get it to work. They eventually got it up and running, but um, but yeah, it took a minute. We eventually got there, but probably wished in hindsight that I had not wasted <laughs> yeah. all that money and all that time at Kites, but continue. We've <laughs> come a long way in the world of uh, sports streaming. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously kicking was kind of the name of the game. We had a... Uh, couple of missed field goals, one of them a chip shot from, I think, 24 yards is what I just looked up. I think we had a missed PAT in that game. So, the, you know, the kicker alone left a touchdown off uh, on the field. And then, uh, 
they they get in position and are able to bring in the, a brand new kicker. I think it was his first kick of I think it was his first kick of the year and uh, drains of his career. I'm sorry. It was his first kick ever. First kick old. ever. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I know you know we we called the timeout to ice him. Everything obviously none of it mattered. He'd have hit it from sixty. So um, yeah, definitely a head scratcher all the way around. And Jeff, to your point, you know, definitely one kind of making people wonder. What was this the right call? And I, um, I did a little bit of a deep dive here, much to <laughs> not for my own mental health, but we had six possessions in this game where we got inside the ULL 40 and came away with no points. Got down to the seven, missed the field goal, as you just said. Got down to the 36, turned it over on downs. Daniel Thomas coughs up a fumble at the 27. 22 we turn it over on downs picked off at the 19 and then we miss a field goal from the 30 so six cracks when you get inside the 40 you got to be coming away with at least 10 points on six possessions inside the 40 but we were 0 for 8 on third down in the first half <laughs> so our offense was really clicking then and and ULL tried to give this game away. First play of offense is when they coughed up that fumble. We got, Cats got on it, got it down all the way to the two, got a false start on a fourth uh, fourth down and one play, backed them up. They tried the field goal, missed the field goal. But it's it, such a perplexing game. K-State actually ended up outgaining ULL by almost 100 yards, 377 to 287, better yard per play average plus one on turnovers. I mean, none, none of the the stats would lead you to believe. Again, if you look at this in an S&P box score, you would like the K-State's postgame win expectancy was probably somewhere in the 70s or 80s. And just it was a tough one to swallow. Uh, and then coming up right after that, you have the UCLA game. And this was uh, going out to visit our old friend Slick Rick in the Rose Bowl. Uh, actually got to go to that game. That was a lot of fun. Got to meet Rick Neuheisel down on the field. That was a that was a good time. Uh, this UCLA team, not particularly gifted, ended up uh, losing the next five games after beating K-State, as I checked on it. But uh, Clint, this is a battle, actually, really throughout the contest. And K-State does a, a decent job moving the ball. But again, kind of a lot of the same bugaboos come back to bite the team in Pasadena. I just remember that uh, Daniel Thomas had looked pretty good. I know you mentioned that fumble, but his first two games, he looked like the real deal at running back. And this is the first game where he, he kind of struggled. And, you know, Carson Kaufman at this point, he started three games and he is not looking good at all. And I'm ready for Grant Gregory to get in there for sure. No doubt. This was kind of the game. Honestly, it was always within reach but you never felt like it was within reach right like I don't think it was obviously I think we ended up losing by 14 but it was always like one big play one way or the other you know and, and we're right back in this thing but you just never like arm's length just felt like a mile away that entire game looks like it was a uh, 13 to 9 going into the fourth quarter so yeah one of those you did you never felt good about it but you're like, maybe things will start clicking and then kind of just gets away from us. I don't remember and much this, about that about that game. Um, yeah. This kind of with Jeff, really, the only reason I remember it so well is I was there. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'll say, uh, you know, the questions after the, the Louisiana game and then continuing after this game, like, did we do the right thing bringing Snyder back? Honestly, at that point, I was like, I think shocked and a little embarrassed that we lost Louisiana. And, but there was just so much apathy leading up to this season for, you know, not just the, the last two years of Prince, but, you know, 2003, uh, 2004, 2005. So it's kind of at that time, I don't know. There, I just remember maybe not even questioning things, just kind of accepting like, this is what our program is. I don't know. But I don't even, like I said, I don't remember being like upset or, you know, pissed, pissed about Snyder being back because, you know, oh man, we just lost to Louisiana or whatever. It was just more of apathy is what I would say. Sadly, I'm right there with you, Alex. I think we all felt the same. This game never really got out of hand. It was never a, a uh, three score margin. So in that respect, you never really felt like K-State was out of it. So coming off of that horrific performance against Louisiana, it was refreshing to see this team be competitive against a middle tier Pac-12 teams. That that in and of itself was encouraging, but in the same breath, you never felt like K-State realistically had a shot to take or hold a lead in this game. Uh, to that point, they needed an eight minute epic drive just to draw to within 13 to nine. And then in the third quarter, Josh Cherry ends up missing a PAT after that uh, touchdown. And then subsequently at the start of the fourth quarter, misses a 40 yard field goal. So again, four points left out on the field there. Those loom pretty large and could have potentially tied the game there in the final frame, but uh, ends up not being the case. K-State lets Terrence Austin get deep on them, gives up a 51-yard touchdown pass uh, midway through the fourth quarter. That extends that out to a two-score margin. That was all she wrote this team, as we'll state throughout the episode. You'll hear the recurring theme here. This was a team that lacked any kind of explosive firepower. You couldn't really ever bank on big chunk plays, particularly from the passing game from this this offense uh, to that point. Also, yards per play wise, you see the the huge margin here. UCLA 6.2 yards per play to K-State, just 3.7, and the Cats only end up racking up 69 yards on the ground. So certainly not a, a recipe for a victory for the Wildcats. They fall to the Bruins 23-9 in the Rose Bowl. K-State comes home, though, and gets their heads right, picks up a 49-7 win over a less-than-stellar 1-double-A team in Tennessee Tech. Hey, shout-out, Brandon Banks. Two kick-return touchdowns in a game. That's pretty impressive, no matter who you're playing. Sure. Yes, it was. Right. Yes, it was. Before we get into conference play, I also wanted to point out, you were saying 08 was a particularly tough year in conference with really good teams. 2009, I believe, was about the opposite. You know, half the quarterbacks going through here, I barely, you know, Sheffield and whatever. But I looked at the Big 12's record in the non-con. It was like 39 and 16. (laughs) It was not good. So before we get into conference play, I think, uh, you know, the Big 12 wasn't very good in 2009. It, it um, took made for some fun games because we weren't a good team and yet we still had some some good moments there so and to drive home that point about quarterback play taking a pretty significant step back in the big 12 holistically in 2009 the wildcats open up conference play that year with 
the Iowa State Cyclones, Farmageddon round one at Arrowhead Stadium, the Clones quarterbacked by Austin Arnod, perhaps a a game manager on, on even his best day. They did have a pretty solid threat at running back and Alexander Robinson, and the Clones ended up racking up over 200 yards rushing in this game. But uh, a lot of fun storylines in this one, uh, and, and I'll just say, to take a step back and look at it from the fan perspective, these Farmageddon games at Arrowhead, and, and this one in particular, I don't know why I think back of this on this so fondly, because uh, I, I, my freshman year, I was a student, and I got to see in 2006, uh, Josh Freeman and K-State beat a top five Texas team in Manhattan, rushing the field the whole nine, and it was an awesome experience, but I don't know why this Farm Again game really holds a weirdly special place in my heart. Again, I can't really articulate very well as to why that is. You know, this is a game that's played in front of a, a half-empty pro stadium, and it, you've got two teams that are fairly evenly matched, and maybe it was just the late-game theatrics that really make me remember this one so fondly. But this was just a lot of fun, and as I just touched on, a lot of unexpected storylines in this one, one of which being Grant Gregory starting at quarterback. K-State hadn't really seen him that much uh, through the first four games of the year, but he gets the nod to open up this game for the Wildcats and promptly takes K-State right down the field. They punch one in on the opening drive to go up seven to nothing. Defense forces a three and out. They get the ball right back, driving down to make it 14-0. And uh, Daniel Thomas ends up fumbling in the red zone. So K-State has a drive thwarted there. And I, we, we certainly aren't sweating this one at mu- as much in the final seconds of the game. But uh, to bring it back more so to Grant Gregory, delivering one of the best quarterback performances that we saw that season. And Clint, he uh, late in the game delivers in a big way, uh, finding one of K-State's deep threats. By far his most memorable play, at least for me, he spins out of a sack, runs towards the sideline, launches one up for Brandon Banks. It's a little bit short, but Brandon Banks with his speed is already way past the defender. He jumps up, grabs it, runs another 20 yards to the end zone for about a 54-yard touchdown, I believe. Great play. And I agree. I, I was going to say, you didn't get a lot of big passing plays out of this team at all this season. <laughs> and that yes. was uh, very, very uncharacteristic for this group to to have anybody take the top off of defense. But Brandon Banks, again, had legit NFL returner speed. And we, we saw that on, on display on that particular play. Um, and and I, I do remember the spin move because Gregory tried to do that. I'm pretty sure on the next possession, and he got dumped for like a 12 yard loss. So, <laughs> he tried to do that a know. lot. I watched highlights and he was spinning into a lot of sacks. Yeah, he went back to that well one too many times, I think. But while that was the big play, perhaps one of the most, uh, dare I say, iconic plays of the 2 0 era happens at the very end of this game with. When uh, I know we talked about uh, some of the names on this defense, I very vividly remember being raging pissed at Tyson Hartman because he mistimed his jump on a fade route. I uh, Iowa State receiver catches it 24-23 and then Nutter, this happens. <laughs> um, Emmanuel Lemur goes airborne. And <laughs> if I recall, he was asked in the postgame press conference, uh, you know, what, what kind of hit you when that happened? And he, his answer was John Hulick. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, so obviously, like you said, that was kind of the jolt that season desperately needed at that point. Uh, the, the two big takeaways, obviously, special teams comes up huge because that game was trending in the wrong direction by just about every definition. Um, to the point that I honestly remember thinking Iowa State might be smart to go for two here. They had to say they had momentum is a massive understatement. Um, but then, you know, to, to, to what you guys kind of alluded to earlier, uh, that was the first, first time that season that I think K-State could really say, we have a quarterback. This is the guy moving forward. So, you know, obviously the, the block is the defining moment of the game, but I think the, the, the longer lasting implication of that game is we were ready to truly hand the reins over to one guy moving forward. Yeah, circling back to special teams like we were just talking about. That's one small play in the whole game that decided the whole thing, followed by one of the most awkward celebration jump collisions I've ever seen. That's, yeah. That was pretty violent. <laughs> they, like, took each other out. <laughs> that was weird. Um, That's why you go out and get a 6-4 safety, just for that type of play. <laughs> That's right. And... And Alex, to, to follow up, uh, and I'd be interested for everybody's thoughts on this, but that, not just that season, but even going back to the year before, that really did feel like the first time in a long time that this is a win that I'm actually kind of excited about. And maybe it, it just was kind of fueled by that late game drama. Right. But the 08 season, there, there was just nothing to it. That You know, we have a lame duck coach the last three games of the season. We get, you know, they fart out a win against Iowa State that last game, game of 2008. Nothing really noteworthy happens that entire season. And then you have this kind of a game to start off conference play. And K-State's never really been known for starting off conference play on the right foot. But I, I was pretty encouraged by this, even though this this was not, again, a particularly good Iowa State team. This was Paul Rhodes, uh, very bleh Iowa State year for them. But I don't know, Alex, uh, what, what were your thoughts immediately after the game? I, I felt pretty encouraged. Yeah, I would say, like, like I was saying before, there was some apathy and just, you know, losing to Louisiana. And the last two years of Prince were just kind of, like you said, there wasn't a whole lot to be excited about, but I think, you know, this game, you, you're tempered a little bit with your excitement because it is Iowa State, but it was also just kind of a fun game, just knowing we're not a good team, they're probably not a good team, but this was a fun, nice football game to watch, and then you start 1-0 in conference, so, and I think, you know, three, four games into the season, we don't even, you know, it doesn't even matter what we did the non-conference, we're all of a sudden in a Big 12 North hunt. So, yeah, I think this was a nice little turning point to to give us a little more excitement as fans uh, going forward. I'd like to just point out real quick, uh, it probably would fly under the radar otherwise, that it can't be stated enough how funny it is that this started a string of what, like eight, nine straight years of just hilarious finishes against Iowa State? Yep, yep. Yeah. There we go. Cycling like years. <laughs> And that will be a very uh, fun recurring topic as we move into the uh, the uh, later stages of Snyder 2-0. So Cats are 1-0 in Big 12 play, 1-0 in the North. Again, for you youths out there, this is back in the day when you had divisions. Uh, so Cats are 1-0 on top of the world. And very, very quickly, and I cannot... <laughs> 
be more poignant there very, very quickly come back down to earth in week two of Big 12 play when they go down to Lubbock. Um, I believe Carson Kaufman gets the start in that game, doesn't he? Yes. Yes. And then, in true, truth be told, Stephen Sheffield, Jesus. <laughs> truth be told, it, it wouldn't have mattered who K-State rolled out there in this game uh, over very, very, very quickly. Uh, generic Texas Tech quarterback, Stephen Sheffield, uh, throws for 490 and seven touchdowns. Iowa State outgain or Iowa State Texas Tech outgains K State by a pretty substantial number, <laughs> seven thirty nine to two eighty four, first downs thirty three to ten. Um, <laughs> you, you, there's not much to really say about the game itself. It's it's one of those where you just so quickly get brought back down to earth. You have this euphoria immediately after that that last second win against Iowa State. And then this happens, and I'll, I'll speak on it from my perspective. I, The one thing I always felt that at the end of the Snyder 1-0 era is that those defenses in particular that Snyder had, they were engineered to stop and still were engineered to stop 1997 Nebraska. We're going to recruit to a 4-3 uh, you know, base and – then you start seeing this the proliferation of tempo, uh, you know, hurry up, no huddle, tempo teams, air raid, raid teams that really started carving K State up. And really, you could draw, you could go all the way back to the Alamo Bowl in 1998 when Drew Brees carved up K State. Josh Heupel did the same thing in 2000. Texas Tech in 01, and then as we go into 04 and 05, the same thing starts to happen where these teams that are spreading out this defense that's really configured to stop one specific style of offense, they can't do it. And that that was one of my biggest concerns. And seeing this happen was very disheartening for me. And I I remember just because the game got out of hand so very quickly, I was just kind of like, this is another one of those questions like, did again, when you start to have that existential question, like, did we make the right decision? Does Caning know, or not to say that he doesn't know, but is Caning going to be our DC next year? And this is also when there's a, there's the co-defensive coordinator element with him and Kosh. And there's just a lot of questions about defense, but seeing another air raid team just carve us up like that was, was very disheartening to watch. K-State did try to implement a new defense that year where they ran a three-safety system pretty often, where they had Troy Butler kind of doing what would be called a nickel, uh, but he was definitely more of a safety than a cornerback, and obviously it didn't work out very well. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of those games where you think at the end of it, it's, you know, no matter who the coach is, the roster just seemed to have no talent on it, which we know isn't true in hindsight. There was some, uh, you know, not a, a full roster where you want the talent level to be, but there was some some decent talent on this team. But this game, it was just it was just it just felt like a real uphill battle to try to get the roster and the talent level up to snuff with uh, especially speed wise against the kind of early years of uh, what the Big Twelve has been known for since you know over the last fifteen years or so. 
Well, and you're not even from a numerical standpoint, but like I just you really had to worry about what a game like this did to did to the team mentally, you know, because to to take it back to what I'd said after the after the win against Iowa State, you know, you felt like you finally had the guy under center. Obviously, that goes out the window when Carson Kaufman starts and uh, when Carson starts in Lubbock and we hang, uh, you know, a whopping 14 on 14 on a team never known for its defense. Right. So, I mean, it was. Truly one of which was the pick six. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> one of one of those scores yeah. was a pick six by okay, Jeff so, yeah, we, we Fitzgerald. Yeah. I'm pretty sure yeah, a late, late garbage time touchdown. Um, you know, against a team widely known for being terrible defensively. So it was really, really back to square one. I mean, in just about every facet. I think our highlight of the game, if I remember right, was uh Ryan Doerr having to punt from basically the goal line with two guys hanging on him. And uh, he was somehow able to get the ball off his foot and it rolled probably 40 yards. Uh, when that's your lone highlight, just just pack up and go home. <laughs> I, I I noted that watching the highlight because I was watching it and couldn't, rem- couldn't remember exactly what happened. And he got that punt off and it turned out to be a pretty good punt. I'm like, that might be the play of the game right there for us. That That's was, one of those where the box score impressive. never tells the story, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Watching it, I'm like, oh, here's a highlight of a blocked punt that goes for a touchdown for Tech. Because I don't remember much of that game. but and I will that say was... that Keith and Valentine, as you said, it was in garbage time, but he had the 61-yard touchdown. We're probably going to uh, say some not very nice things about a Keith and Valentine play later in this pod so i'll give him a shout out right here (laughs) we love you keith (laughs) and this this tech team this was peak mike leach they they were never they they took a step back from the year before when they went 11 and 1 but this what this is pretty much what we had really come to know tech to be under mike leach where they were just eight and four every year like clockwork and this team uh offensive coordinator for this team name that we're pretty familiar with in the big 12 right now lincoln riley so (laughs) so uh perhaps we're just exacting revenge on him over these last two seasons you know because he (laughs) ran it up on us back in 09 so who's who's to say things always come full circle uh but but yeah, so this ends in a 66 to 14 defeat. Again, we talked about all the the stats surrounding that game. Yeah. It wasn't pretty at all. Nothing really, to, nothing to take home. Um, we moved next though to the game against uh, Texas A&M. So K State's coming home, um, and this one, this was another one of those weird early trends of the Snyder 2-0 era where cats get blitzed one week and then do the uh, and then come back and return the favor to the next opponent on the schedule and that's exactly what happened in the game against A&M Clint and so many things that you can talk about in this game um and I I, honestly I don't even know where to start I remember just the defense destroying Gerard Johnson that was the one big thing that I remember in this game but a lot of standouts uh, individually for K-State in that and that 62 to 14 romp over the Aggies Mm -hmm. So Texas A&M had some talent on this team. They had Gerard Johnson. Uh, We talk about uh, the the first interception of the year that K-State had on RG3. He hadn't thrown an interception before. Same for uh, Geno Smith. But people forget that Gerard Johnson set the Big 12 record for most consecutive passes without an interception. 
then he throws three against K-State. And honestly, Joshua Moore probably could have had three more. I mean, he had his hands on his passes all night long. Uh, This is the first game that Daniel Thomas, I mean, he had some success, but this is the first game where he just looked unstoppable. He had four touchdowns in the first half. John Hulick, we talked about him a little bit earlier. You know, he was an undersized guy, not super fast, but he was quick and he had a high motor. He was killing people this game. It was just an overall feel-good game after that drubbing we took against Texas Tech. And that uh, Gerard Johnson, too. Uh, A lot of people forget about him. Uh, Second team all Big 12 that year and only comes in at second team because of Colt McCoy. So he's brought, he is performing at an exceptionally high level, but K-State, again, just owned the day on defense. The big story of the game, and the, if you go look at the box, you'll be able to tell right away. Uh, A&M, six turnovers, Kansas State, zero. That is the big score there. Now, uh, Alex, a pretty uh, play that large, that no one, again, nerds like us will obviously remember, but there's a touchdown reception in this game and nobody else will, pr- there are very few people who I would imagine would remember this, but a guy that we came to know in a couple seasons, being a pretty big playmaker, made his first big uh, play in this game. Right. I believe right before halftime, yep. uh, we throw a touchdown to none other than Colin Klein. Number 12. What number was number, he wearing? Number, uh, <laughs> ah, number 12. <laughs> I knew that. No, I didn't know that. Uh, I knew he wasn't wearing uh, number seven, but yeah, Colin Klein, first touchdown as a Wildcat, I believe, was receiving a touchdown. Was it I looked 18? that up earlier today. That made it 38 nothing going into the half. Nothing. Yep. And then and we were uh, up 52 to zero in this game. Like, holy jeez. Like, I remember it being a butt whooping, but it was one of those games where I just. I kind of just stopped paying attention. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, it was just – it was a fun game, but you're just, you know – it's nice to be on the other end of, of one of those where you yeah. barely remember the game because it was such a such a blowout. You know, it's funny you say that, Alex. I was watching that up in the press box, and one of my most lasting memories from late in that game is uh, – I was. it's kind of like a, a high-rise situation where, there, you know, it was like a – one row of seating and then behind it kind of like stadium seating, but like for the media. And I was on the second row of that. And I looking down, one of the reporters in front of me was booking an oil change during that game. So that's, that's how that game went. Yeah. It was a 16 yard touchdown pass over the middle to from Gregory to Colin Klein. The, uh, the TV broadcast, they never even mentioned his name, which kind of just adds to the lore of that play. Really. It's like, uh, what what was it? Is it Brett Favre's first completion as a Packer? Do you know who it was to? Brett Favre. It was to Brett Favre. I was just about to say, right? this is probably a ah. Marcus Tuiasosopo to Marcus Tuiasosopo scenario here. So yeah, just it was batted back to him, and he caught it for, like, negative three yards or something. So, yeah, <laughs> Alan Klein's first touchdown, not a passing or a rushing touchdown. It was a receiving touchdown. K-State rules the day, 62-14, to 14, so back up 2-1 and one in Big 12 play, 3-3 three and three overall. And then this game, the next game after this is a 20-6 win against Colorado. This might have been the most uneventful 
two touchdown win I can ever recall. This was a very like an extraordinarily meh Colorado team. Uh, Cody Hawkins and Tyler Hansen are battling for QB. Rodney Stewart at running back. Scotty McKnight at receiver. They, they, you know some names that if again if if you probably if you graduated in 2000 you know eight to 2010 probably sounding familiar but guys that are at school right now probably have no idea who the hell we're talking about but this was a very boring game not a whole lot to write home about uh but the cat the cats do win it to move to three and one in the big 12 on top of the north and we'll have to give our uh friends at up and aims a, a shout out for this uh a game that really kept K-State in contention through, uh, for the North throughout the entirety of the season was Iowa State winning in Lincoln, Nebraska, 9-7, to <laughs> courtesy of eight turnovers. You've probably watched the YouTube video with the Benny Hill music running underneath it, but that's that's how we move to 3-1 and one on top of the Big 12 North, which sets up a game uh, against Oklahoma. And, and Clint, I, I know my thought moving it as we start moving in and talking about like, can this team realistically win the big 12? The thought in my mind was always, I don't know uh, what what's going to happen against Oklahoma, but I'm just going to inherently assume that we're going to take an L here. And this is very much house money. I don't know if you felt differently about this game. I go into every game thinking that K-State's going to win. I get my heart broken way too often, especially in 2009. <laughs> you know, I, I think this is a fun game. You had Brandon Banks return a kickoff for a touchdown. He had well over 100 yards. Daniel Thomas threw a long touch or a long pass to Brandon Banks. He had that two-point conversion pop pass to Jerron Mastrude, I think. Uh, you know, it, it was a we came back, we made it close. K-State looked like they were maybe improving. That's my takeaway from it. Yeah, this one, uh, just to kind of set the stage initially with what occurred here, first three drives for Oklahoma, touchdown, 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 K-State, punt, 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 three and out uh, across the board on all those. So, and this was an Oklahoma team that I won't say reeling, but Sam Bradford was injured earlier in the season. So now uh, a guy, a name that, again, you probably, uh, a lot of you have heard of, Landry Jones is stepping in to quarterback the Sooners in this game, but still a lot of weapons. You had Chris Brown on this Oklahoma team, ran for 20 touchdowns the year before. He had Ryan Broyles. They still had a lot of firepower on this offense. But as you said, Clint, K-State really does battle back. They hang and they draw it within 28 to 23. And Nutter, I feel like you want to take the lead on this one. <laughs> uh, it's definitely stuck in my mind, so I might as well. Um, yeah, we, you know, we claw back, like you said, we get it to within 28-23. Again, a uh, blocked extra point keeps it at five points. Um, just, you know, again, kind of the recurring theme of just uh, chip shot field goals and extra points being an issue all year. But at any rate, we're within a touchdown. And a couple of I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up the sequence, but it was a couple of holding calls and then an unsportsmanlike conduct. <clears throat> and Oklahoma's looking at first and 45. And a couple of chunk plays later, K-State's defense manages to allow them to convert that. They go on to score a touchdown. That obviously opens it back up to a double-digit lead. Banks uh, returns the ensuing kickoff to keep it close, but again. 
any real shot of completing that comeback, I think, kind of vaporized when they converted that first and 45. I remember Snyder being pretty visibly disgusted about it, you know, after the game. And it's definitely something that you got to think was in the back of his mind for quite a while. (laughs) I mean, half the damn field. No, I I very... and, And we're aging ourselves here a little bit, too. This is also when... Back in the day when you weren't guaranteed that every game would be on TV. I know this was a night game that was televised in Norman. And I remember watching that. And I remember the, the out to the near sideline when Broyles caught it and ran it down there. And, and he just, and it was third and 24 and he got 25. And that was definitely the, the straw that you felt like broke the back. Like, and again, this defense, just think of what they've been through over the last couple, you know, you give up 66 to tech, you then, <laughs> limit A&M and a pretty powerful offense to 14. You put the clamps down on Colorado and you hold them to just six. And then you have this, you know, you get blitzed by Oklahoma on the first in the first quarter, get down 21, nothing. So there's, there's a lot that's happening with this, but it was, it was a tough one to swallow in the end of it. Cause it, Clint, now that I, I've had time to kind of think about this, like you just said, they they really did have a chance to steal this one, and, and this was not a, by Oklahoma standards and by you know vintage Bob Stoop standards. This is one of his worst teams, and they had every opportunity to go in and steal this one in Norman and could not get it done. And it was just a tough one to swallow, but that does set us up for a pretty memorable Sunflower Showdown. And uh, as we touched on at the very beginning of the pod, uh, the the game in 2008 that ultimately ended up getting Ron fired was a 52 to 21 loss to the Jayhawks and Lawrence. That was the 2008 team. That was not the 2007 Orange Bowl team. The 2008 team that KU had, which was respectable, but it was not anything like the 07 squad. So we move into the um, we move into the 09 Sunflower Showdown, and it, that point uh alex i want your thoughts here initially um i i remember the last i remembered the stat that snyder had not lost to the jayhawks at home since you have to go all the way back to uh, 1989 and okay my my biggest fear was are we gonna lay an egg here and let Mangino get another one on Bill and let Mangino get one on him in Manhattan. That was what my biggest fear was. Yeah, it was, it was a interesting game going into it. I believe, uh, you know, KU came into that year still ranked in the top 25 and I think they were on a pretty good skid. I think they ended up losing like their last six games of the year, seven games of the year. They started, started five and oh, lost. Yep. They, yep. They, they started five and oh, they ended five and seven. Is that right? Yeah, okay. That's but you know, it's still a rival rivalry game and they kicked our butts three years in a row, basically. Um, so yeah, it was one of those kind of nerve wracking games where you, you want like, okay. Clint said he thinks we're going to win every game going into every game. I'm kind of the opposite. I usually <laughs> always have a bad feeling. Right there with you, Alex. I yeah. right very much. Every, even the games you should win, I always have a bad feeling. I'm like this, you know, and I'm pretty nervous most of the game. I remember being at that game, and I feel like it was one of those games like KU made a lot of big plays, but uh, I remember Reesing had a couple of fumbles, and we made 
just enough plays to really in Daniel Thomas just ran it down their throats. And, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it was one of those. And obviously it was the last real competitive. uh, Well, not the last, I guess Snyder's last KU game was the, uh, Kick it with the, the the hidden flag game um, was was competitive, but you know it, it was the last game before a string of non-competitive games with KU. Um, so yeah, I was pretty nervous about that one, and you know, I think honestly, that game meant a lot to the season and to the to the the next few years for both programs. Just based on how the previous three years had gone against KU, like. On, like we're all in our early thirties, right? I mean, if you take away maybe uh, Les Miles and Chris Kleiman's first year facing off against each other, I mean, you would have to think this is one of the more meaningful Sunflower Showdown games of our lifetime, right? You know, Bill's back. I mean, if you want to talk about calming the waters, right? We just went not only zero and three against KU, but like a disgusting zero and three, right? Like, I mean. Games that weren't even close outside of the one in Manhattan. Um, obviously, I don't know that it's ever meant more to the fan base than that particular win. But, uh, yeah, I don't think it can be overstated how important the timing of that win was. And, you know, when you think about uh, atmospheres at at the Bill, uh, it probably wasn't quite up there because I don't think attendance had been great that year, and especially in that game. But I do remember that being a pretty raucous uh, student section, a pretty, pretty good atmosphere that game. That was that was nice to kind of release some of those demons against KU and get back, get back on the winning side. Um, and then kind of seeing both programs going in opposite directions. So and to do it in front of a regional television audience on versus, you know, what, what, what uh, you beat me to it better versus. Oh, yeah. There's uh, there's hundreds of eyeballs watching that game. <laughs> Literally <laughs> dozens of people. <laughs> this was yeah. this was I'm, a lot of, for this despite the lack of scoring. This was still again a lot of fun to watch and and Clint, I I'd say arguably this was probably DT's best performance of the season. I I don't know if you have a different thought there, but I I felt like this was his best game. Yeah, it just seemed like every time he got a chance, he would rip off. I mean, he wasn't a guy who's going to run it 80 yards down the field, but he got 10 yards, 12 yards, 15 yards every time he touched the ball. Um, I I just think it's so funny that year. I'm sure KU thought that was after their losing streak, after going 5-0, that K-State was maybe their last chance to get into bowl eligibility. And just like KU always thinks, like, well, of course we're going to beat KU or K-State no matter how bad we are. Uh, so just to be able to beat them while they still have Todd Reesing, Desmond Briscoe, Kerry Meyer, that was just a special Jake game. Sharp. Did they have Jake Sharp then still? Did. Yeah. 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 I was going to say that was that was probably the toughest thing to watch uh, over the last over those previous two seasons, just watching a homegrown kid carve us up, watching Todd Reesing carve us up. And to be able to to actually be that that was still a very competent KU team. Uh, but again, they go five and seven, but they had a cup. This was obviously a close 50 50 game. Uh, the game against Mizzou at the end of the season uh, came down to a last second field goal that Mizzou made. So that, that was still a very a functional KU team. And with that, that probably made the victory a little bit more 
savory, if you will, uh, as we move forward. And that win does help keep K-State in contention for the Big 12 North title. They're 4-2 in the conference standings. Again, uh, Nebraska has dropped a couple of games, so that's why this game is, like K-State is still very much in the running uh, to win the Big 12 North. That sets up a game against Mizzou, and one of the plays, uh, very memorable, at least for me in in that game, very early on, it's three to three, K-State's driving down and they have a a slant to Br- uh, a little crossing route to Brandon Banks. He's taken it to the end zone by the student section there on, on the uh, on the north end zone, ends up coughing up the football. And then it really just seemed like because, again, this was te- as we've talked ad nauseum, this was a team that very much struggled to consistently put together drives on offense and to lose out on a scoring opportunity like that was tough. Um, but as we, another point that I touched on earlier, Josh Cherry, this was in the middle of his hot streak. So he goes, he knocks in four or four field goals in this game. And late in the third quarter, this game is 17 to 12 and K state's still very much in contention to win this one. But then, uh, Denario Alexander ends up ripping off an 80 yard touchdown pass. And that was pretty much all that she wrote after that. Uh, and again, this was another one of those games where I weirdly felt like, and again, the math, the way that the math shook out, you knew weirdly in the back of your mind that you could lose this game and still have a chance to win the North if you upset Nebraska and Lincoln. And again, I don't know how you guys were feeling about that, but in hindsight, that was one of those things where I just looked at it as like, well, I get, it sucks that we, we let this one get away, but in the same breath, still late November at Nebraska, you win that, you're going to the Big 12 title game. The fact that we're discussing getting to six and six and winning the North in the same game really is such a testament to how much of a mess the entire Big 12. I mean, obviously it never mattered, right? Like all, all roads led to Texas So anyway, but uh, yeah, obviously, you know, uh, we, we were – the chips fell how they did, right? I mean, it's you, you can only play the hand you're dealt, and we were right there with an opportunity, like you said, be that, you know, be, again, thanks Iowa State for forcing eight turnovers in Lincoln, you know, like you alluded to earlier. But the fact that we even had a chance is crazy in and of itself. Yeah, the only thing I remember about that game is it was the Denario Alexander show. He had ripped off 200 receiving yards and two out of – Four or three out of four games to finish off the season. That guy was a beast. Yeah, he had a, a, very, a very clean line from him in this game. Ten catches, two hundred yards, even up. Like he just. Yep. In addition to the eighty-yard uh, touchdown, he had a fifty-four-yard touchdown, which I think also points to kind of the struggles of that defense, not having uh, necessarily a complete defense. You know, even even when they're doing okay, they they were still susceptible to those big plays and. You was know, this the those. Tyson Hartman game where he kept under jumping every single pass, going for the interception instead of trying to knock it down and just being way short every time? That really stands out with me, but I can't remember what game it was. A lot of games might have been that game. Yeah, I, unfortunately, I think guards, that was that's... another. Yeah, we, we saw that a few <laughs> a few times that year. And this uh, the 
that Daenerys Alexander, he was a great receiver and he had a cup of coffee in the NFL, played for the, at the time, the St. Louis Rams. This, uh, also this team was quarterbacked by Blaine Gabbert, future, uh, 10th overall, uh, selection by the Jaguars. Future um, Hall of so Fame quarterback. You know. Sure. Sure. Let's, let's say that. <laughs> uh, but some dudes on this Mizzou squad again, it, this was still very much, this was a weird time in the North in particular where you had Nebraska very clearly had this identity crisis, but they had this lights out defense, which we're going to hit on here in a second. But the North was still very wild, really, because up in the in the nineties, the it was either Kansas State or Nebraska was winning the North. And then Colorado kind of started to work its way in there. And then the North just became this wild west show of mediocrity where Colorado's in contention, Iowa State's in contention, and they're blowing divisions late in the game, late in the season. Uh, KU's in contention, Missouri's in contention. We just see a whole host of teams winning the Big 12 North. And again, like Nutter, you said, it just it's wild how meh the, the, the conference was, and in particular the division was. But uh, the way that it all shakes out, though, K-State, despite that loss to Missouri, 38-12, to they have a chance to win the North as they go to Lincoln for the final game of the 2009 regular season. And uh, this Nebraska team is just stacked on defense, just absurdly stacked on defense. <laughs> so guys that didn't even get drafted like Jared Crick, Will Compton, solid guys. Prince of Mukamara, 19th overall in the 2011 draft. And Dama Sue, obviously the big name, taken second overall in the 10, uh, in the 2010 draft. Philip Dillard, Larry Asante. I know K-State was recruiting Larry Asante. Uh, this, this defense was just absurd, and they just sat on every team that they faced. They were number one nationally in scoring defense. And, uh, and the buildup... That it was one of those games where I, I always I thought back to my childhood and I remembered how Snyder would always attempt to downplay how serious the Nebraska game was. But it, in the back of my mind, you knew he had something for it. You knew that there was something in, in there that the preparation, the guys were going to be locked in that week. And they very much were. This this was not a game in which K-State got blitzed. This was not a very gifted Nebraska offense, but this was still a game in which K-State was there really until the end. And a couple of plays here and there that go sideways really threw things off. <laughs> uh, this is a game that I just don't really remember, to be honest. <laughs> I, I remember the good times. This was not a good time. I, I have zero memories from this game. So I remember the score, and I remember the one play in particular, which I'll get to in a second. But there was a sequence that kind of bookended halftime that really, really kind of set the tone and really kind of defined what this game would end up being. So we were, uh, we had gone up, punched in a field goal to get up early three, nothing. Um, Nebraska eventually evened it and then scored on a a long touchdown pass. Um, late in the second quarter, we were driving and, uh, a Grant Gregory pick in the red zone, you know, erased a chance to either either tie it or cut it to a four-point game. And and then uh, we for, I believe we forced a punt on the next drive. In fact, I know we did because we got the ball back with about a minute left in the half at our own 24. And very clearly just trying to run out the clock, you know, just conservative run up the middle for, for nominal gain 
Well, then on the next play, Daniel Thomas essentially accidentally breaks off a 25, 30-yard run. And now we're kind of scrambling because there's only like 11, 12 seconds left. Gregory's able to scramble down the sideline to get us into moderate field goal range, probably about a 50-yarder, which, you know, we've talked about Josh Cherry a lot. I feel like we're really kind of teeing off on this guy. But, (laughs) you know, he misses the field goal just before half. And obviously for a drive where we didn't even think we were going to be trying for points, to get that close to points and come up empty, that obviously stings. And then uh, our next drive, which I believe was our first drive of the third quarter, um, Gregory finds Keith and Valentine on a slant. I mean, honestly, a perfectly executed play. And he's popped right at the goal line. Ball pops out. Nebraska falls on it at the five. And that is just about all she wrote on that one. So, I mean, really that entire game can kind of be defined by, you know, that, that three drive sequence. Yep. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't I, remember much. I remember the, the Keith and, uh, the Keith and fumble. I don't know. Sometimes those games, you just kind of, you, you erase them from your memory. I just remember the bizarre circumstances, the, uh, you know, you win and you're in the big 12 championship game. You lose, you don't even make a bowl game. <laughs> I can't even think of any other time that like a weirder, you know, the consequences of winning and losing were so, you know, obviously winning, losing a big game, you're not going to, you know, get to the national championship or whatever, but, you know, to, to not even go to a bowl game, that was about the, the weirdest uh, kind of polar opposite results you could ask for. That's all I remember about that. So I I tell you what, I actually, I had a class with Keith in that, that semester. It was one of those like, uh, like care and prevention, like athletic, like learning how to tape and whatnot. And, uh, I was sitting next to Keith and obviously I'm not going to say anything to him. This is that next Monday. And our professor walks in, she stares him straight in the eye and just point blank goes, sorry about your season. (laughs) I was like, dude, that was low. Man, Keith is such a good guy. We've we played flag football with him. Alex and I have, and he's he's given us a lot of inside tidbits from back when sure. he played. And I I feel terrible for that. Just that yeah, one. no, you never wish anything like that. And I'm sure she didn't mean that the way it came off, but I was like, that was cold blooded. Right. And obviously there was many more, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking that's like late fourth quarter, that play, because I don't really remember the whole sequence of events in that, but you know, obviously, I think, you know, Gregory threw maybe a couple picks in that game. And, you know, obviously, the, the game did not come down to Keith and Valentine's fumble uh, whatsoever. Um, but, yeah, he's he's a good dude. Um, pretty, I don't know, had a pretty decent career here, I would say. But that's definitely a play that sticks out. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Was backup running back, so he's near the top. Right. It was tough. Uh, and, and watching the execution on that play was really terrific. Like the, the they lined up, they got the DN dropping back into coverage off of Keithan. Like it, it, they, they could not have gotten a better look, and the the throw was on time. And I mean, it's one of those where if if, if it's a fraction of a second, maybe earlier, Keithan maybe has that extra, you know, tenth of a second to just kind of tighten up a little bit on the ball. I mean, the hit the hit was just textbook though it, it, it is yeah. what you teach your guys to do just hat right on the ball popped it out 
Uh, the other thing too, in going back and watching it, Lamarck Brown had a chance to dive on that thing too. A very in a very good say, chance to get. Back. I saw two K State guys kind of slid past that ball. Had a good chance to get it uh, in the highlight. So I seem to remember it being on the ground for a long time. It yep. was. I, I was actually at that game. It was in the end zone. I was sitting in. Now, granted, I was like eighty rows yeah. up, so I'm not saying I had an exceptional view. But. It bounced back to about the three or four yard line, and and two K State guys kind of, you know, baseball slid past it. So, and at the end of the day, though, this K State's defense was up to the task in this one. That this again was not a great Nebraska offense. Roy Hallou at running back, Zach Lee at quarterback. No real playmakers out on the boundary. Uh, they just really didn't have a lot of firepower. They leaned on that defense. Nebraska did. And and uh, the score, though, at the end of the day, Josh Terry misses a couple field goals. You have that fumble there. Now, the the one thing I will say, K-State did end up thwarting a, a Nebraska potential scoring drive when Tyson with two Ys got the INT in the end zone to stop a drive and takes it out close to midfield. So in all in all, was this game maybe a, this a little bit closer than the score indicated? Probably, but at the end of the day, this squad probably would not have fared too well, dare I say, against the Texas Longhorns in the Big 12 title game. But to think that that group had the opportunity to compete again, this was of all the Snyder 2-0 teams, this was again thrown together with, you know, scraps of you know, you know, scraps of wood, particle board, duct tape, super glue, and they still managed to get six wins out of it and, and to be in contention for the North. It was it, it was one of those scenes and seasons I look back on and, and a lot of it because I was a student, but I got to see a lot of these games in person. And it was it was entertaining because you felt like at the end of the day, save may, maybe that Texas Tech game, obviously. But this was still a, a group that was back to competing. And that, that was the big thing I took away from it, despite finishing six and six. That was the one thing I be, felt like, OK, we've we've moved past this, you know, this era of, you know, Ron Prince offense, Josh Freeman's throwing for 200 yards in the third quarter when we're already down by five touchdowns. And a lot of this is irrelevant. We've moved into a point where we're actually competing against big 12 teams again we're i'm not saying that we're back in obviously division contention we're expecting to be there year by year but that was kind of my thought as we moved to the end of the season that we we were moving in the right directions for all the things that we said at the outset and how we kind of felt about this i i did really feel like we had that this group had taken some strides as we closed out uh, what was just a very uh, again subpar season well jeff that kind of goes back to what you had asked me you know at the beginning of the show you know, going into that first year, did I think that, you know, sustainable, like actual improvement was possible? The fact that we had a team with a pulse for 12 games, I mean, is really leaps and bounds ahead of what we had put out there really the last year and a half, two years, right? I mean, you just kind of alluded to it, like Freeman put up the numbers and obviously got the contract in the NFL, but how many of his stats were garbage time stats for all intents and purposes, right? I mean, to, to actually just see that discipline again and to see a team out there competing for four quarters. We, we knew they weren't going to win a ton of games, but you obviously knew that that was setting the table for something bigger, much bigger, as we later learned a couple years later. So, yeah, I mean, I know obviously the foundation is, is a term that's, you know, vastly overused in this fan base, but like it really was kind of set again at that point. 
they, you uh, can see this team had heart. I mean, they on defense, they like to hit. I mean, they just seemed like they had more pride than they did in the previous couple of years. Yeah, just setting, you know, kind of getting getting to a point where um, obviously there was still some some holes to fill on the roster, and uh, but just knowing that the team's going to go out there and you know execute to their best the best of their ability. Um, so if they get beat, they get beat. It's not just you know because I think a lot of the the Prince years is you know there was some questionable uh you know game planning but there's also maybe some questionable motivation from from players which you know has to do with coaching as well so so i i feel like you know at the end of this year it was uh maybe not the kind of a i think if if they said six and six for this year we all would have been like yeah six and six sounds about right but the way we got there definitely i don't think anyone was going to guess you know losing to louisiana and then like throttling a&m and you know the way we got to six and six and still had a chance at a big 12 North title was, uh, unexpected, but I feel like at the end of the year, things were, um, you know, the waters were starting to calm a little bit, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And then you had guys that were wanting to come back home. You had Chris Harper, Broderick Smith transferring back in that year, sitting out. I mean, that gave me a lot of hope just seeing those guys. (laughs) It really made me think that we were going to start landing all these, top five Kansas kids, which wasn't exactly what happened, but we, we got a few real big impact transfers out of it. I think yeah, I was going to say, when you start talking about it in terms of what that did recruiting wise, and, you know, people talk about the transfer portal now, like it's some sort of revelation, like y'all it's, we've, we've been plucking transfers for a while. And it's just now that there's just this one centralized location, it's like, it's this new phenomenon, like mm-hmm. hitting the transfer market's not new people and, and K-State, that that was probably the biggest thing that the staff did in that off season and and getting those guys to come back home. That, that those were huge gets. Now we'll hit a little bit on that here. I do want to talk about a couple of a big what ifs as we uh, move forward here and get ready to kind of wrap things up. So we we've already talked about the ramifications of what happens if K State beats Nebraska, but I I wanted to get the group's thoughts. What do you think the squad does if Josh Freeman elects to stay? Now, we know he probably looked, he was like, oh, so let me, so what happened the last year? You know, Snyder was head coach, Alan Webb and Alan Everett ran the ball combined 158 times. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I might, I'm probably not signing up for that, but what, what do you guys think the squad would have done had Freeman stuck around? If he stuck around and bought in, which I'm, have a hard time believing that would Those have are happened. two very different things for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think this could have been an eight win team. We uh, hopefully would have beat Louisiana. I think we pull out another win for sure. Uh, I think quarterback was definitely a big weak spot and returning senior Josh Freeman. I mean, we could be talking about one of the better quarterbacks to ever play here, which some people might say that already about Josh Freeman, but uh, I don't think he's ever listed on most people's top three where he could be if he returned that year. Yeah, I agree with Clint. Um, the buy-in is is uh, questionable. Maybe even even if he was bought in, how the coaches are going to use him or who he's going to throw the ball to is a question. Yeah. You know, if you have the best quarterback, but you have no one catching the ball, 
it doesn't do you a whole lot of good. And then you're going to start asking your quarterback to run the ball. And that's not, that was never his strong suit, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, I like uh, <clears throat> our question we were going to ask about, you know, what player from this year we want to put on that team, you know, we, we like Grant Gregory and he was kind of a warrior for the team. And, but, you know, he didn't, his shoulders were shot, you know, he, um, so our passing game was pretty rough most of the year. I would say probably our worst quarterback situation since, uh, other than 2015, probably, uh, in the Snyder 2.0 era. So this, if this, if this team had a legit quarterback, um, cause I think Gregory fit the, the mold of wanting to run the ball, uh, could probably, you know, make, I think, you know, Kaufman's whole issue was he couldn't run the ball and he was not good under pressure in the pocket. You know, he could throw the ball fine if he had plenty of time to throw the ball. So if you, if you had someone that could throw it and, you know, like a Skylar Thompson, you know, do a little bit of both, this team could have, I would say probably about eight games would, would have been about right. Mm-hmm. And Bill Snyder Bill did, Snyder. I mean, shift his offense for who his quarterback was before Bill Snyder, or I'm sorry, before Michael Bishop, this was a passing team. And uh, obviously with Jake Waters, this, that was a passing right. team. So if we had Freeman there, Banks, Mastrude, they would have gotten more targets. It would have been a decent team. Yeah. And I, I think how much we be, we, it was very apparent that this was a one trick pony with Daniel Thomas. You knew he was a bell cow that was going to get 25 a, ga- uh, a game. And, and to his credit with a, with a pretty respectable O-line, he still made his hay and, and r- rushed for over a thousand that season. But to think of the pressure that goes off of him and how much is opened up when you know, you've got a future first round or a quarterback back there next to you, how dynamic this offense then becomes and how much you can stretch the field. And again, you, you had a guy like Brandon Banks who can get behind people in the secondary. You had a big body in Lamarck Brown, like you said, Jerron Mastered. I know we say this wasn't a particularly gifted team with pass catchers, but you had some dudes that, you know, when you think about right. that, you they, got they a, might not a look solid gifted NFL just based on pass. who's throwing it to them. So, yeah. And does Dion Murphy come back if Josh Freeman comes back? I mean, yeah, he they, could have come back one more year, but he elected to leave once uh, he didn't really mesh with Snyder. But if you had Josh Freeman <laughs> to him, I right. think that was going to say that was kind of a package deal there. I, I don't think Dion was. What, what was the know, uh, supplemental draft? What was the thinking that uh, one of the reasons Josh left was to give Kaufman uh, another year to be this because they were, you know, they were really good friends growing up or whatever. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure the the first round projection in the draft probably maybe pushed him over the edge. He he wanted to give his buddy some more playing time, I think. A nice thing to say about your friend. (laughs) Well, I don't know if you guys remember, wasn't Kaufman like an emergency signing? his freshman year Ron had run off like every other quarterback. It was like Freeman and Dylan Meyer. And I think he had to like go out last minute and yank in another quarterback. And I think Carson's who he came up with. Yeah. Sounds right. I don't, I don't remember him being a terribly, uh, you know, stretch of a, you know, he might've been a guy that, you know, belonged more in a, not not like Division One Double A at the time, but you know, like a lower conference. But yeah, well, I don't even mean he was a reach. I just mean he, yeah, yeah. we weren't recruiting because we had like our quarterback room had like six guys in it when Ron got here. 
Yep. And he ran, and he ran almost Allen every Everett. single one of them off. I mean, immediately. And, and yeah, I if I remember right, he, he had to go probably saw the writing on the wall with Freeman, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that so, was... Uh, so real quick, let's, uh, let's talk about just... You said Texas narrowly escaped beating uh, the power. <laughs> yeah, you see, this is the media guide from 2006. So it was all about Freeman. Yeah, very power subtle. of one is very the cover. Who was number yeah. one? <laughs> Anyways, so uh, I was looking up that game, the Big 12 championship game, the uh, Texas-Nebraska game, and I remember watching that, watching the, uh, the controversial – uh, you know, Colt McCoy threw the ball away, but put way too much air under it and almost ran out the clock. I was watching right that at a basketball game. Too. What's that? I, I think he threw it to the far side of the field, too. It wasn't like one of those. He was rolling out, but he threw it like he could have just dumped it off or whatever, but he just lobbed it up there. But I watched that play and the review of it at a K-State basketball game, maybe before the game started, uh, up in one of the suites. Like, I was in the student section. And some people, and then so I had to look it up, like, which game was that? Can anyone guess? Was anyone there? Does anyone remember watching that? Um, or getting oh, this nine, notification? Ten, a, I am going to take a stab and say <laughs> December Washington 5th. State? Yes. Oh. Wow, that's impressive. December 5th, 2009. Clay Thompson, exactly. Clay Thompson game, yep. He's a bum. That's impressive. I didn't think anyone was going to. I had to look it up. Who did we play that night? But, yeah, I remember watching that whole replay and to see if uh, Texas was going to get a second on the clock or not. Uh, we were all gathered around somebody's suite up at the top of the student section, which then Texas obviously goes and uh, loses to Alabama, which – I think Colt McCoy got hurt in that game early. Yeah, kind of like throw, uh, six uh, Eric Gilbert, I think, was the quarterback they had to roll with that time. game. And that was uh, that was Saban's first championship at Bama. God. So that's what else was going on in college football that year. <laughs> so much has changed, clearly. Um. Yeah. <laughs> he was at number one. Now he's uh, six, I think. How many times has Texas been uh, back since then? Many. They've been back a lot, preseason-wise. If you keep saying it every year, you're bound to hit it right at some point. I heard, I heard it said pretty well a couple of years ago, maybe the biggest rivalry in college football is Texas versus back. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about the, the what-ifs and, and just a couple of others that I wanted to hit on here before we just wrap things up. Um, Brandon Harold had a big breakout freshman All-American season the year before. Nothing. No production from him at all this year. And then, Clint, you also touched on it too. Guys like Chris Carney, uh, Courtney Herndon, Eric Childs, guys that were getting lots of snaps on defense all of a sudden kind of recede into the background. You wonder, like, and maybe that that might be a little bit of a testament as to why this defense was actually pretty good. But, man, you wonder, like, what if we had seen some of those guys rotate in? Because we know Snyder was very big about you had to buy in. If you didn't buy in, you're not going to get reps in practice. If you don't get reps, you're not getting on the field. Yeah, and then Aubrey Quarles also, he – Obviously, it wasn't a disciplinary thing, but he 
got some mysterious leg injury, that, so he was out for the whole year. I mean, what could have been if he was part of that receiver room? There's a for again for what we've said about this team for the for what we again the perceived lack of talent. There there were some. There were some things there that we, we talk about now. It's kind of fun to look back at and just say, man, maybe this was, you know, if they just didn't, if they, if the scheduling gods maybe smile on them and they don't have to take that stupid trip to ULL, if that gets pushed one more year for the return game. I mean, there's so many little things here and there where you think about it, if that this could have been a bowl team in year one, we could have potentially been talking about a North title, playing for a big 12 championship, so many things. But all in all, again, a very fun season. Looking ahead to 2010, um, a lot of uh, a, a lot of talent coming back. And another thing you touched on, Clint, some of those guys that were those transfers coming in. And I think that was kind of what piqued a lot of people's interest, got people to buy back in. Uh, as far as fans go, because, you know, Nutter, you hit on it. Attendance was pretty light <laughs> by by K-State standards. But I think some of those transfers that were coming in and, and just the way that the season concluded, there was a lot of uh, hype surrounding this team as we moved into 2010. Yeah, I was excited. I mean, Chris Harper was about the most exciting recruit I had been following recruiting that was going to come to K-State, regardless of whether it was a high school or JUCO or transfer. Uh, just seeing his highlights, what he was doing over at Oregon, I knew he was going to come in, try to give quarterback a shot. I know we were still looking for that dual threat guy, uh, but I don't, you know, he came in and that didn't last long. They moved him to receiver. Still pretty excited about that. Well, I think and just also, the fact that, with the exception of Stringer, I think you returned the entire offensive line. Obviously, you get your, you know, your far and away biggest offensive weapon back in Daniel Thomas. You at least, I mean, you know, when they give the reins to Kaufman at this point, you know, it's straight up his, right? Because there's nobody behind him, you know, for better or for worse, you're rolling with one guy and call it what it is in any, you know, 1.0, 2.0, anytime Snyder's rolled with one quarterback, the early results have always been better. So, um, you know, I think all those things were kind of at play here. Um, you know, you're bolstering the offense with with some of the some of the transfers at that point. So, yeah, I definitely think there was tons of reason to be excited on that side of the ball. And Netter, I think that's about as good a spot as any to book in this first edition of College and Kimball. As you and the others have alluded to, a lot of compelling storylines to talk about as far as football goes for the 2010 Cats. You had the emergence of Chris Harper and Broderick Smith in that wide receiver core. Daniel Thomas just being a workhorse for that group week in and week out. And also later in the season, the emergence of Colin Klein at the quarterback position. Again, a lot of fun storylines to talk about as far as football is concerned. But I think at a more macro level, what we're all looking forward to discussing are those seismic events that took place at the Intercontinental Hotel in Kansas City, the Big 12 conference meetings that happened in the summer of 2010 that have really shaped the landscape of not just college football, but college athletics here for the better part of a decade. So plenty to discuss in the forthcoming episode of College and Kimball. That 2010 episode will be dropping same time next week. In the meantime, do give us a follow on Twitter at college underscore Kimball. Again, we're here for any and all questions that the K-State football faithful have for us. So until then, guys, it's been fun. We'll talk to you all next week. 
Cats, man.